Yeah, so today we are concluding our journey through the story of Daniel. Uh, we're at chapter 6 now, so if you want to follow along, you can go ahead and find your place in chapter 6 of Daniel. This is really, we mentioned this last week, but this is the halfway point uh, for the book, and it, it marks the end of the narrative portion of the book of Daniel. If you remember, the, the first half is this different selection of stories from Daniel's life, and it shows God at work during the period of, of the Jewish exile. In the second half, it doesn't actually chronologically take place after the narrative portion of the first half. It's actually a totally different type of literature. It summarizes, you know, it actually goes back in time a little bit. Um, it summarizes dreams and visions and prophecies that Daniel had that were given to him uh, by God throughout his life. And at this at this time, we're not going to continue and we're, we're not ready to kind of tackle going through all of that part of the book in detail. <laughs> yeah, I do want to come back and, and look at at least part of it um, in the future. But uh, so we'll be leaving Daniel um, for a while after today. Uh, but I, I kind of feel like we've saved the best story for last uh, when it comes to the stories of Daniel. Uh, chapter six has what I think must be the most famous story that's associated with Daniel. It's it's become almost synonymous with Daniel, I think, um, where you, you kind of have these phrases like David and Goliath, um, Noah and the Ark. I feel like Daniel in the lion's den is kind of, I, I hear that phrase more often than just Daniel when it comes to the, the biblical Daniel. Uh, and it, it's not really his la- last name, but it's like, oh, which Daniel? Daniel in the lion's den. Oh, that Daniel. Okay, yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very iconic story. Uh, it's, it makes sense. It's a very cool story. Um, and it is, it's unique in some ways, but we'll see that it is, you know, it's also very similar to the other stories we've already gone through in some ways. And it, it fits this larger pattern that points to Jesus. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So why don't we go ahead and just jump in and start with reading the beginning of the story. And we're picking up, again, the beginning of chapter 6. And remember, the very last verse of chapter 5 ended with, um, well, the death of Belshazzar in the second to the last verse. And then, um, so Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, is dead. Darius the Mede has received the kingdom. So Darius is on the throne uh, it's now a Persian, Medes and Persian um, empire. So chapter six is going to begin by telling us about Darius's reign. It says, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. And he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. So I'm going to pause there for a second. This this should sound familiar if you've been following along with Daniel's story so far. We've seen enough from Daniel now that this doesn't really come as a surprise. It's a new ruler who, you know, he doesn't have experience with Daniel, but it seems like it doesn't take long for him to realize that Daniel has this extraordinary spirit that he's demonstrated under every king that he's served. And it, it distinguishes him. It sets him apart from all the other wise men and officials and, and administrators and rulers. Uh, and of course, we know as the reader that it's because of Daniel's faith in his God, Yahweh, and, and God's spirit in his life. Uh, but from the perspective of you know, King Darius, 
and the other officials, they were aware of this Jewish God that he um, worships, but he's really just from their perspective, this guy who's setting the bar really high and uh, overachievers I've noticed are often not very well liked by the people around them who they're making look bad in comparison. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to call anyone out for fitting in which, which category do you wish people were doing, uh, doing not so overachieving so that you look better or are you the one making everyone else look bad? Uh, either way, he, he got, he has this reputation and he's a lot of these other people are not, not happy. So the natural result we find in verse four, when it says, then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible and completely trustworthy. So they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So Daniel has this reputation and he's so blameless that even when they looked closely trying to find some way to get him in trouble, they realized they were going to need to find some way to turn his own faith against him. So his loyalty and his service to his God was clearly evident in his life. It's not like he was hiding it. Um, but it was that that was the one thing that set him apart as a Jew from the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians. Uh, so that was what they were going to use to try to single him out and plot against him. Uh, something that, yeah, go ahead. Well, and I think that when you, you read that description of him in verse uh, four, where it says that he was faithful, always responsible and completely trustworthy, we've seen that in other characters in the, the narrative that we've studied so far, we would call that righteousness, right? It's mm -hmm. living a life in such a way that um, there's no, uh, there's no blame in connection to your actions, though you're not a perfect person. Uh, you are living up to God's standard on, uh, on a regular basis and striving to do the things that please God. And, and I think anytime we, we notice righteousness, it seems to be in contrast with, uh, with wickedness. So if you go back to the narrative of Noah being a righteous man, it's in contrast to the wickedness of the rest of the world. And, and so as you get this, you get these contrasts between righteousness and wickedness. And we're getting that here in Daniel again. It's that same, here's the righteous and here's those that are certainly not living righteous, uh, righteously. And David, uh, the king, understood this very well, just as David, the elder, understands it very well, too. Uh, but in Psalm 15, <laughs> verses 2 through 5, it says this, The one who lives blamelessly practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue? Who does not harm his friends or discredit his neighbor? Who despises the one rejected by the Lord but honors those who fear the Lord? who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver with interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. And as we read a passage like that, um, you can't help but, but see, hear the overtones of that Psalm in this passage uh, in, 
in uh, Daniel chapter six, because you have the righteous person who's not willing to do anything wrong. And then you have those that are trying to slander him and, and malign him. And when, when I took a second glance at this section of verses, I couldn't help but see the irony in what was taking place. Daniel is not corrupt. He is righteous. So he's being promoted. So therefore, those who want to be promoted act even more corruptly to discredit Daniel so they can be promoted. Now, how is that ever going to work? If, if you're going to promote someone to oversee the leaders and protect the king's interests, certainly it must be someone that you can trust, someone of integrity, someone who lives in a certain uh, right standing as far as not even if they don't believe in God in, in relationship to others, that there's a justice there, that there's a truth that they live by. It would certainly not be against a person. You would not elevate someone who uh, plots against innocent people in hopes for personal gain. And so I think that this set of verses just proves how woefully deficient the other leaders were, which really doesn't give me a lot of hope for the Medes holding on to the kingdom. This is like the third kingdom, right? There was the Assyrians, there was the Babylonians, and now we have the Medes um, that have all tried to you know, conquer the world, so to speak, and they haven't haven't done it successfully. This is a little different as we get the intro to this book because you have the, the leader, you have the, the king actually setting up all these 120 different leaders to oversee the empire. Uh, kind of like he's learning from his predecessor's mistakes and trying to do a better job of administering things. Um, but, but anyway, I'm just amazed at these, uh, these people who are high officers in a position that requires trust and security and uh, reliability are thinking that somehow if they can discredit this man and they can get rid of him, that somehow that'll work out into their favor and being someone that the, that the, the king would trust. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm a little yeah. jaded in that. It just doesn't seem right. Well, it's not. Obviously, their their motives are very corrupt. Um, it's amazing how many similarities there are in this this setup of the scene um, to the story of Esther as well. But um, that's getting ahead of ourselves. Do you want to do you want to keep reading? Uh, read the next few verses. Sure, and I do want to say that it's really hard not to jump into Esther in this particular story, even in the book of Daniel. It's been re we know that we want to preach through the book of Esther. It's been so hard not to jump there because it's just like this parallel world, especially this story. Uh, it's just like this this crazy parallel to this uh, in the book of Esther. Um, well, and we are now because we're in the Persian kingdom. This is now the the empire, the the kingdom that will be in power when Esther comes on the scene. So it's really not that far down the storyline, uh, which is which is cool. Uh, we talked about that enough last week. Yeah, we don't want to get into it too far. All right, I'll read. I'll read, and then you can okay. continue. On. So, so the administrators, verse 6. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. I mean, how could you not you know, be happy when somebody says that to you? We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will strictly be enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now your majesty issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. 
Yeah, it seems like he didn't even take that much convincing. He didn't, it was, at least it's not recorded. That, did he have any back and forth? Like, okay, why does, why is this a good idea? But um, notice one thing that probably did throw him off. In verse 7, they say, all the administrators of the kingdom. So he's set up all these administrators in the previous verses. We know there's a lot of them. And these, this group of them is coming to him and saying all the administrators of the kingdom, which is just a flat out lie, because we know that at least Daniel would, and possibly others, but at least Daniel is definitely one of those administrators. And obviously he's not in on this plan. So when they say all the administrators of the kingdom agree, they were being very deceptive. They deceived Darius and he just, he went along with it. And this edict this law says that nobody is allowed to pray directly to any god or man except through King Darius. He's good. He has to be the mediator. They're either going to ask King Darius or even just like pray through Darius um, so that Darius can, you know, submit their petitions to whatever god they want him to. That puts him in like this sort of high priestly role, um, but that it's not a role that obviously was appointed by God and therefore it was not a legitimate role that Daniel as a Jew really can't go along with. So what's Daniel going to do? In verse uh, 10, it says, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied, that decision stands. It is an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. And then they told the king, that man Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So it was, they had to wait till sundown. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Mike. I know you have something to say. I just wanted to say that I don't know about the rest of you, but I am really impressed with David's kingly voice when he reads the king. I mean, I think that that's worth noting. (laughs) He's able to pull off a kingly voice. Well, no, the whole thing changed. I like that. Um, But the story is very specific about a couple of things that I think are worth calling out. Um, It's very specific that Daniel heard the news and then went to pray as he always did. And so there's a couple things there. It wasn't that Daniel went off to pray in ignorance of the king's command. He knew what the decree was. He knew that the law had been signed and he still went and prayed. So there was no, there's no mistaking the fact that, that he knew what was going on. It wasn't uh, a sin of ignorance or omission in this case, uh, so to speak. Uh, the second thing is, is that he went to pray as he always did. 
Um, and, and I think that's pretty significant. Uh, and the way that he always did was at least three times a day and facing Jerusalem. And it's like, well, why is that reference even in there? And we've talked a lot about the way that the Bible hyperlinks things with certain phrases, that there are certain things that you, you read and you're like, well, why is that detail there? Just like even the book of Daniel, it started out uh, with a couple words about the articles from the temple being taken. Uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, and you're like, well, why is that even in there? And later up on the story with Belshazzar, it shows up that the, he took the articles that were from the, the temple and used them for this party. So there's these little tiny uh, hyperlinks, I guess I'd call them, where you can click and go back to the story and pick up some details that you might be missing. Um, Daniel was praying towards Jerusalem, and that to me is a big hyperlink back to a story that we studied together with Solomon. And uh, if you want to tap back or flip back to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, uh, 1 Kings 8 was the dedication of the temple. And Solomon prays this prayer. And what we're reading is are the words of Solomon in his dedication prayer um, in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 46. And in chapter 9, we read God's reply. So I just want to read a little bit of this with you so you can see the hyperlink that, that Daniel's drawing for us here. When your people sin against you, 1 Kings 8, 46, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and hand them over to their enemy, and their captors deport them to their enemy's country, whether distant or nearby. And when they come to their senses in the land where they were deported, and repent and petition you in their captors' lands, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have been wicked. And when they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive. I don't know if you've got how many times the word captive has shown up in this. Uh, but catch this part right here, in verse 48. And when they pray to you in the direction of their land that you gave their ancestors, the city you have chosen, and the temple that I have built for your name, may you hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and petition and uphold their cause. May you forgive your people who sinned against you and all their rebellious rebellions against you. And may you grant them compassion before their captors so they may treat them compassionately. That was part of Solomon's prayer. And in chapter nine of first Kings verse three, it says that the Lord responded to Solomon and the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and petition you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple that you have built to put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. And so Solomon in this temple dedication prayer is really being very prophetic. And you don't realize it at the time. I mean, there, there was not mention of a captivity that I know of uh, directly to Solomon during that time. But yet Solomon is actually praying about when your people are led captive, when they're taken as enemies. Um, when they look toward this place and they pray toward this place, toward the temple, um, hear their prayers and listen. So, so Daniel took this quite literally. And I want you to understand that even today, this is something that the Jewish, that, that Jewish people take quite literally as well. It is very common to still pray toward the direction of Jerusalem. And there are specific prayers uh, about that. So this idea of praying in direction of the place where God's name was, where God uh, dwelled, where God actually, as a reminder, God removed them from and kicked them out because of their rebelliousness. Um, it's not so much that it's a mystical place, 
it's not even so much that it's where the temple was. It's more about turning their gaze and their direction back to God and their relationship with God. Because what was symbolic in the Jerusalem story and with the temple was that God kicked them out just as God had done in the garden with Adam and Eve. And that God removed them from his presence and promises someday to restore them to his presence. But it requires that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them. And, and so it's the idea of them turning back and looking back to God. Um, and that is physically um, captured in the location of Jerusalem. It gives them a physical way to represent the spiritual um, concern that God has. Because remember, God's kingdom is not just a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. That's really what it's about. So, so this idea of turning toward Jerusalem was a big part of Daniel's life and, and an important part of it. And I think it's one of the reasons that it's mentioned in this prayer is to hyperlink it back. So those are a few things that I noticed from it. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so <clears throat> to get back to the story now, um, where, where <laughs> these corrupt officials um, have trapped Daniel and notice they, they bring up the fact that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, that any law the King signs is irrevocable. And we can see that the Persians held to that irrevocability of the law. Um, we actually, again, it comes, comes up in Esther. Um, but we also see that in some other historical sources, um, of ancient Persia. Um, but the King is not happy about it. It says the king was deeply troubled, or depending on your translation, it might be displeased or distressed. Uh, but if you notice, he really was, it doesn't seem like he was upset that Daniel had broken the law, even though the, he ignored your law, king. He doesn't seem troubled about that. It's, he's pretty indifferent about that, it seems. Rather, he's distressed because he's being forced to enforce this law that he had no idea would have to apply to Daniel, who he clearly favors and, and likes. But we've gotten to the evening. They came back to him and said, you know, he, he's done for. You've got you've to enforce the law. So in verse 16, it says, So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Now, we're going to pause for, I think everyone knows how the story goes, but we're going to pause here for suspense anyway, and just uh, point out a few things. So first of all, I think the statement that Darius makes as he's, as Daniel is going into the, the lion's den is very interesting. It's almost like a prayer to God, but not quite. He's, it's like he's saying, you know, may your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. It's like, I really hope that you get rescued by this God who you serve so faithfully. So he's acknowledging God, though he himself doesn't serve this God. He's been able to see that Daniel serves him faithfully. And by bringing that up, it's almost like saying, well, 
let's see if all that faith and that service was worth it in the end. Or even, you know, here's a chance for your God to prove himself and prove how powerful he is, as you keep saying he is. Uh, but he, he's not saying this in a flippant way or in a way that he's kind of hoping to see the test fail. Um, this is a really emotional, heartfelt, genuine expression from the king. Uh, I think he's just, he's terrified and immensely sad uh, to be losing Daniel. doesn't want to see this fate befall him. And then I think the second thing to notice is that the, the entrance to the den was covered up by a stone and sealed. So that would prevent Daniel from being able to escape or for anyone to come and rescue him. And the seal would prove uh, that no one had come and, and broken that seal overnight. Because apparently it was, you know, an overnight thing. Um, well, and it wasn't the king's seal, was it? It was the king's seal mm -hmm. and the noble. Oh, like plural, like they had multiple people sealing this thing up. Like, there's no way anybody's no gonna get in here. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanna I wanna also point out before we get back to that story is I, I was taught the story of Daniel from the the moral you know the moral lessons of Daniel and the idea of living your faith in the midst of of tough times and everything, but not necessarily from a messianic perspective. Um, not looking at it as literature that points to the Messiah. And we talked about Solomon. We just went back to the temple. We talked about Solomon being a type of Messiah. Um, but one of the things David and I have really been, um, I guess, enjoying studying out and, and really seeing in these passages is that Daniel is also very much a type of Messiah. And he points to the Messiah. So as we come to this story, what was never taught to me as the Bible, as a kid in, in like Sunday school and in, in a little Bible lesson with little flannel graphs, if any of you remember flannel graphs, flannel graphs or whatever, um, is here you have in Daniel, a man who is blameless, who is righteous, being falsely accused on the grounds of his faith and the faith religious law, sentenced to death. And the entrance to the place of his death was sealed with a large stone and a government ring. Now, I don't know about you, but does that sound familiar to anybody? Um, I mean, you don't think about it uh, until I mention it, but now you're like, oh, yeah. And it's like, wow, this is like so, um, I guess, foretelling of exactly what happens to Christ. And, and by the way, uh, what was Jesus doing just before he was betrayed by his enemies who falsely accused him? Oh, he was praying. What was Daniel doing just before he was betrayed? Oh, yeah, he was he was praying. Um, I, I think there's just so many overtones of what the Messiah is going to be like and what's going to happen to the Messiah in Daniel that you wouldn't get if you were a Jew in exile hearing this story necessarily. But but having seen the work of Christ and being able to look back, it's like, oh, wow, there is so much in here that relates to that. Um, so. Anyway, to, to me, that's something that I was not brought up uh, looking for in the stories of Daniel. I was taught, you know, look for this lesson or live this way. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But I wanted you guys to also see those hyperlinks there that, that point forward to the Messiah, as well as the hyperlinks that point back to the temple that are, that are really part of the story of Daniel. It's like there's multiple layers. 
There's the story that's going on. There's the bigger picture lesson to the exiles about the, the promise of the Messiah. But then there's these like these prophetic things that that talk about uh, even a bigger picture of what God is doing. Like all these different tiers of lessons going on in these stories that we seem to only pass on as children's stories, um, which is mind-boggling to me. It's like these are fantastic stories. Yeah. Um, and that's a great, I mean, it's great to tell these stories to kids, but then to just leave it at that does it does the story such a disservice because it does go so much deeper. There are layers to it, uh, which is why we can continue learning as adults uh, from from these stories. And this, this part of the story, when we get to the actual lion's den, uh, I think is where it gets kind of fun and why it's, it's such a popular and famous story. Uh, it's just to kind of use our imaginations and try to picture what it was like for Daniel. It's, it's kind of, I don't want to say fun. It's kind of scary <laughs> to picture that. Um, it's, we don't know how many lions there were or exactly what the den looked like, but even just to be trapped with one lion would be pretty scary. Uh, and we know there were plural, multiple lions, probably several. Um, I'm curious uh, if you want to pop in the chat and uh, have any of you ever actually seen a live lion in person? I'm just curious. And if so, you know, where, or, you know, what did you think? Um, I, I actually had a lot of fun doing some of the research for this message because lions happen to be my favorite animal. They, they always have been uh, at the zoo. Yeah. Most of us, if we've ever seen a lion, it would have been <laughs> at a zoo. Um, lions are, they're huge cats. <laughs> they're, they're really strong. Uh, and I think, um, the reason the, the, just the imagery of a den full of hungry lions is just so fearful that I think that's one of the main reasons this story has captured imaginations for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And a lot of um, painters and artists have tried to depict that, that moment. Um, and there's a, actually a very famous painting. I think Mike can pull it up. Uh, it's just called Daniel in the lion's den. Um, and it's by a Flemish artist named Peter Paul Rubens. Um, I'm curious if, if this image, um, if you've seen this painting or if it might, might even just look kind of vaguely familiar. Um, it just happens to be the one paint. There's many paintings of Daniel in the Lion's Den. Uh, this was painted in the early 1600s. Um, it probably looks familiar to a lot of you. It's on display now in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., um, and the cool thing about that is Mike and I actually got to see this painting in person a couple years ago. Um, we were in Washington, D.C. for business, but we got to check out the gallery. And this was one painting that really stood out to me when I saw it. And one reason that it stood out is, and you can't really tell just by looking at it on the screen, is just the size of this painting. The scale is huge. It's actually, the whole thing um, is technically a full life-size scale. Uh, which you just, <laughs> I actually happened to have, uh, I found a, a photo that Mike took of me standing and looking at the painting. Um, they couldn't have left him a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to look at, we're going to talk about how realistic it is or isn't uh, in a second, but there, you can kind of tell how big it is, but you still, it's, you still just can't get the experience um, of how big it is until you're really like standing right there in front of it. Um, but if we maybe we can go back to the the main photo of the painting. Um, so I love this painting. It's gorgeous. Um, it really showcases 
you know, the ferocity of the lions and kind of just the, the immediacy of Daniel's danger. You know, it's, it's almost palpable. Um, and I love that, that style of the realism and it's kind of theatrical, but even though it's very real and detailed looking, it's also very unrealistic in a couple of ways. I'm curious if anything stands out to you guys um, about what, what's wrong with this picture is, is my question. Um, he probably didn't, they probably didn't leave him with clothes because um, there wouldn't have been much of a point, but any, uh, anyone want to chime in? Now my family's quiet because I already talked about this yesterday, so I can't, they, can't, they know the answers. <laughs> he is white. Yeah, that definitely stands out. He's very Anglo-looking, very pale uh, overall, which is not very realistic. I mean, there's he probably looked a lot more, you know, what we would call Middle Eastern now, darker skin pigmentation, um, and even, you know, facial features. The Jewish, you know, Jewish people were more on the, the darker brown skin. There's, there was variety, you know, but he probably didn't look like that. <laughs> and he probably would have been dressed in the clothing of the Medes also. True, yeah. Um, are there more than one lion in lion's dens? More than one male lion, probably not. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Probably be mostly female lions. I've seen male videos of male lions getting along, but it's kind of more of a rare thing to see than, than the the norm. And yeah, male lions just kind of have a cooler look to them, I think, with their manes and they look majestic. And I think that's why artists prefer to depict male lions. And there's they're all male except for maybe two or three in there female, which is yeah, that's not very realistic. It's a good point. Mm, yeah. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. Um. So the biggest thing that stood out to me as, as, the, as far as the biggest inaccuracy, not just how Daniel looks as far as his, his you know, skin tone and, and features, it's that he's depicted here as a young man. Um, and if you remember, even just in the, the, for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about Daniel being older. He, was, he would have been in his 80s, um, at, the, at the least his early 80s when he was thrown into the den. So definitely not this you know, strong, young guy. Um, and yet I've seen so many depictions of Daniel in the lion's den. I feel like I grew up with images like that, where he's a young man you know, in storybooks and in paintings. And I'm not sure where that came where that misconception came from originally um but i think images like this have influenced a lot of us and i know that i typically i've often pictured daniel being a much younger man than in his 80s uh when he was thrown into the lion's den but you can also find some uh paintings where he's depicted as you know an older man with with white hair that's definitely more accurate um you all i also noticed when i was looking at paintings there's paintings from you know ethiopia that depict him as, as black with dreadlocks and you know pick, it, it's just people tend to depict characters from the bible as looking like they they do <laughs> all throughout the world it's it's interesting um but anyway i think just realizing that he would have been 
older, um, realizing that I think some in some ways makes you feel even more concerned. Uh, it seems even more cruel to throw an old man into a den of lions. Um, there's just there's just no chance he would ever be able to fight them off, um, even if it was just one lion. But even if he was even a young strapping man in his prime, he really still wouldn't have stood a chance, even if it was one lion. Um, and another, th I was looking at videos of lions and stuff. Um, there's one I came across of where it's on YouTube. I could we can send the link, maybe put it in the notes or something. Um, but the, it's it shows these three really huge, strong bodybuilder type of guys, three of them putting their whole weight and strength. You can see them just straining on this rope that they're trying to pull. Uh, and then the camera kind of pans over to show what they're, what they're pulling. And on the other end of the rope is just one single female lion holding the rope in her teeth. And she's just kind of standing there, kind of crouched back a little bit, but she's not even budging a hair. She's not like doing this on the ground. She's just standing there perfectly still. She barely even seems to be trying. And it's just like so cool to see. Puts in perspective just how strong lions can be. I also saw a video of this huge male lion walking across a road and his head was like taller than an average looking car as he walked by it. So the male lions can get huge. Um, so I think Peter Paul Rubin's painting that we we're looking at, I think the one thing it's really effective at is kind of depicting the raw power of lions and how big they are. Their muscles are all, they're crazy and their jaw strength is just absolutely terrifying. So, and you know, we've, Probably most of us have seen wildlife videos where, you know, if you have a pride of lions, several of them can take down huge animals that are many times their own size and weight. So they, they are an apex predator. Um, so that's, yeah, the lions are pretty, pretty cool in that painting, even though they probably weren't all male. Um, another thing I think interesting to think about too, that we really can't capture in a painting and why all the paintings you find are of, uh, where there's light coming in through some light source, uh, but it would have been really dark once the entrance was actually sealed up. There's a there was a rock over it and it was sealed. Uh, we don't know exactly what the den looked like. It could have been a cave looking den like that, or like a hole in the ground, or it could have been um, made out of bricks and mortar. It could have been like an actual constructed like a pen almost for the den or for the uh, lions. Um, but what whatever it was, we know. Um, in all likelihood, it would have been pretty much pitch black once it was sealed, or at least very, very dark. Um, and that's another thing to realize that lions have exceptional night vision. They often hunt at night. Um, so compared to humans, you know, they would be able to see their, their victims very easily. Uh, the victims wouldn't be able to see them. So even just that thought alone is terrifying. And to think that you don't know where a lion, you can probably hear the snarling and the licking their chops and their teeth, uh, but you don't, you don't know how many there are, you don't know where they are, you're just standing there scared. So, and Daniel had to spend the entire night uh, in there alone with them. And meanwhile, the king was fasting, he denied any entertainment, and he was just, he had all of this going on in his, his mind. He saw, he's seen the lions, he saw Daniel go in there, and he's just thinking about, you know, hoping some miracle is going to happen and that Daniel will, will be okay. Did you have anything to add to that, Mike, or should we keep reading? Well, I was just thinking that it mentioned that Darius didn't sleep all night. I have a feeling Daniel didn't either. I mean, yeah, I don't know how you could. 
uh, unless the Lions got all nice and snuggly and, and uh, <laughs> he was able to cuddle up to him. I doubt it. I doubt it. No, and with the description of the den, you know, we call it a lion's den, but we're going to see when Daniel's taken out, he's actually like pulled up out of. So it's definitely some kind of pit um, he was put into as far as the entrance to it. But other than that, there's, I don't, I don't know if we have a good example of, of uh, a, a type of torture like that. I mean, there's not many people groups that found ways to get rid of their people, uh, their enemies with, uh, with lions. Everyone seemed to have their, their preferred method of dealing with those that they didn't want to deal with. So with Nebuchadnezzar, it was a fiery furnace, right? So we'll just torch them. Uh, with, with this one, with Darius, it's, uh, it's a lion's den. And, yeah. I think we get more gruesome as we go along. Um, and I, again, I don't want to go into Esther, but even that one's gruesome too. Read Esther and you'll find that there's even True. some gruesome ways to get True. rid of Esther. Um, it's amazing yeah. the creativity that people have when it comes to doing away with their enemies. And Persians were notoriously brutal um, with their executions and with their torture and uh, Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah, and you, the Romans actually did um, with, you know, the gladiators and, and um, bears and lions were actually used to, to execute Christians um, in the early days of Christianity in Rome. So that's interesting. Um, but let's, uh, yeah, let's read what happens next. Uh, we're picking up now in verse 19. It says, very early the next morning. It usually happens when you can't sleep all night. You, 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 uh are kind of up and at him early. So it's very early the next morning. The king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God. Interesting choice of phrase there. Was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. Your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. So there's that lifting out. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. The lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom <laughs> uh, should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he, and this is, he kind of goes into a, a poetic verse here. For he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So, Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Yeah, now we know that, that uh, Darius did not want to throw Daniel into the den, um, but he had to keep this law. However, he was up early to see if Daniel could still be spared. Um, and it wasn't just early, it was 
very early. Um, and I think that that's uh, just a great second indicator of the heart of Darius. You know, where he's stalling, trying to find a way out of the law. And then he stayed up all night uh, fasting and, uh, and, and not sleeping. And then first thing in the morning, he's running to see if there's any chance to save or spare Daniel, if there's any life breath in him. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if apart from the way that God did this miraculously, if there was anything left to Daniel, I don't know if it would have been worth resurrecting at that point and pulling out of the den in, in a typical scenario. Um, but I also think that in this passage, it, it's probably Daniel's interpretation of the king's words where we get the description, the living God. Um, it, it's, it's there uh, and, and it's effective, but we should probably not consider that this was the conversion of Darius, but rather that he acknowledged Yahweh alongside his other gods. Polytheism was most common practice in the non-Jewish world and monotheism was really unique uh, to the Jews. So I, I don't think we should uh, jump to the conclusion at this point that Darius was probably had this, you know, this uh, conversion in his life and started following the one true God. Uh, he acknowledged the God of Daniel, um, but I don't believe this was uh, you know, a conversion moment for him, I guess is what I wanted to, to make sure we point out here. But he acknowledged him along with his other gods, which, which is significant um, and possibly even elevates him above some of his own gods, which I think is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but Daniel was, he was obviously saved by a, a miracle um, and it's the intervention of God uh, that is really brought out here. And, and then as he comes out and he's speaking to the king, actually before he's lifted out, he says, listen, I have been found blameless before God. So back to that righteousness, I've been found blameless before God. And I have also not wronged you, O king. And it's like, well, wait a minute. How can he say he didn't wrong the king when he did pray to his God and the king had made an order? Um, and there's a couple of thoughts you can have there. Either the king's decree was, uh, was not right in the first place which we obviously know that it wasn't. Um, or, again, going back to the uh, original part that David had brought up, uh, David Stelz had brought up about the fact that the exiles were to do what was in the best interest of their captors while they were in captivity, for Daniel to remain faithful to his God was in the best interest of, of any king at that time. And so for him to be faithful to his faith would certainly be to not wrong the king even though he was going against the king's order. So I think that there's, there's a couple different thoughts there, but uh, it's obvious that, that Daniel was not doing something just to be rebellious to the king and, and in defiance to the king as much as for the king and for, for the ultimate king, for God. Um, and so, uh, David, you had a note in your, in your notes about verse 24 proving that the lions were not defective. And of course... All my brain can do is go back to the movie Secondhand Lions when they ordered a lion and it's like, this lion's defective. And it's like, because it wouldn't attack or whatever. And so I, I read that and I'm like, oh, that's hysterical because my mind just went there automatically. But, but yeah, I have seen that, but I hadn't thought of that until you just said that. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, it's, perfect. it's perfect. I thought that's where you pulled it from. Um, but yeah, the, obviously they weren't, they weren't uh, defective, right? They were, it wasn't that they were well fed and just not hungry. As soon as these other people were thrown in, they were just ripped, uh, torn apart, is I think what the NLT said. Some translations actually said that their bones were crushed before they hit the floor. Again, going back to that power concept, the, the bones yeah. were crushed. I'm like, ah, so vivid. gruesome. <laughs> Very gruesome. Yep. 
And the, the king, so you mentioned that he acknowledges Daniel's God, but it's also important, I think, that he makes this decree that everyone should tremble with, with fear before him. Um, and I think that almost um, kind of counteracts the, the law that he had put into place, um, even though it he couldn't take back the law, but this kind of supersedes it in a way. It's like, well, you better fear and tremble before this God because he's real and he's powerful. Um, so I, I think that's just really cool. Um, and then he goes into that, that poem um, and if you notice you know, certain parts of that poem that say, you know, he's the living God, he'll endure forever, his kingdom will be, never be destroyed, his rule will never end, and that he rescues his people in miraculous ways, uh, which is why I like that song, he's a rescuer. Um, he rescues his people like he did Daniel from the lions. And I think these little elements in the king's um, poem uh, they're very familiar, right? It's very similar, I think, to when we saw Nebuchadnezzar's response to seeing God's power. And then these phrases like his kingdom will um, last forever, that kind of echoes um, parts of uh, God's covenant with with David and just that, that truth of God being a rescuer is something that he had been proving to Israel since he brought them out of Egypt um, and brought them through the Red Sea, and they sang about God being a rescuer then. Um, and I think that's, you know, that was that was the the point, that was the, the lesson to be learned here. Um, whereas, you know, like Mike brought up earlier, a lot of times we, we teach this story, we tell the story, and we teach that the, it's teaching this moral lesson that, you know, God protects and rewards those who trust him. Um, but I think there are other takeaways to that, you know, God doesn't promise to always protect us in this life. <laughs> and we saw that with, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they understood that God had no obligation to save them. They had no doubt that he could save them from the fire. Um, but rather than focusing on what God might choose to do, we should focus on what we know God can do and what we know God will do. Um, and, you know, just apply our faith, um, accordingly yeah and and i think that the lesson to get from this is not god will protect you from your enemies as you said um there are many martyrs uh that did not experience that type of protection uh, because it was not part of god's plan and even though we read a psalm that talks about god defending the upright and everything it's not a magic formula that if you live a certain way god will protect you from all of your enemies um, what we know for sure is that God's plan will be accomplished, uh, that God's will will be done. Uh, so I think it. I think we need to make sure more so that the lesson is not about God protecting us, but it's more so about making sure that our lives, if there's a lesson for us, that our lives are defined by our faith so much that others, even those you work with, cannot help but notice it. This is the third time in the story of Daniel that it's mentioned that he had an exceptional spirit and that he served the faithfully the living God. Uh, it, we have in this story that it was mentioned that Daniel was committed to praying habitually three times a day. His commitment to God and talking to God was important enough in his life that those that wanted to do harm to him knew that he was a person who prayed regularly to Yahweh. And, and so I think one of the, if we're looking at the application of what does this mean to me and how does this story relate to me, it's not, it's not a story about protection. 
It's a story about living a righteous life. It's, it's the story about does your relationship with God define you, even with those you work with? So they see that your life is lived in integrity and in right standing in God's eyes. And they see that your faith is a huge part of your everyday living and cannot be separated. Um, and they have no reason to bring a, a case against you or a cause against you because you're living in such a way that you're honoring God. Um, I think that that's really the lesson that we can take away um, for us as far as like, how do we live? And, and I don't often hear that in the presentation of, of Daniel and the lion's den. It's about, it's about the lions because that's creepy and powerful and just um, kind of vivid and graphic. And you kind of want to picture that in your head. But, but the real lesson is not about the lions. It's not about the den. It's about the life that Daniel had that pointed a pagan king to the one true God. And that's really the, the question for us today is do our lives point people around us, even those that have no association with our God, that, that don't know God and that have many other gods in this society? Do our lives and the way that we live point those people to the one true living God? Um, and if not, what needs to change in our lives so that we do? Mm-hmm. And without compromising um, our beliefs, because it might seem dangerous. Um, so that the, the courageousness of Daniel is one thing that does get pointed out often, I think, and that's certainly legitimate uh, lesson to be learned from his life, the, just the boldness and, and but, but humility as well. You know, he wasn't trying to rub it in anyone's face. He was just trying to follow God quietly and humbly. Um, and it was, he got attacked for it, but he wasn't afraid to continue doing the right thing, continue doing what he had always been doing, even when faced with, um, danger or enemies. Yeah. Yeah. And as we wrap up this series in Daniel, I think uh, David and I want to, to really kind of focus in a little bit more on the Messiah part of the story, um, because that's really important because as we get to the end of that, the passage in chapter six, where the King is then talking about what God is going to do in his kingdom lasts for God's the, the, the one true God's kingdom will last forever, et cetera. We're being reminded that um, that God's kingdom, that the God, Yahweh God's kingdom is eternal. And that it's his kingdom, not the kingdom of Babylon, not the kingdom of the Medes, not the kingdom of the Persians, who were introduced to at the end of this chapter, will last forever. Um, even the dream that Daniel had that he interpreted in chapter two, and not that Daniel didn't have the dream, I'm sorry. The dream that Daniel interpreted in chapter two um, that we skipped and made some of you mad because we didn't actually talk about all the parts of the, of the image and the gold and the silver and everything. Even that was a reminder of, of worldly kingdoms that would eventually crumble and fall. And, and so why do you have all these stories in Daniel about kingdoms that aren't going to last? And at the end of them, the conclusion is, but there is a kingdom that will last. That's the story that keeps happening over and over and over in Daniel. And it's easy to get caught up in the micro stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of Belshazzar, of Daniel in the lion's den, of the food in the beginning. It's so easy to get caught up in the micro stories that we miss what the lesson is that's being repeated over and over and over again. And that is that the Messiah would come and establish God's eternal kingdom here on this earth and it would free people from captivity and grant them access to the very place that God dwells, mm. the very presence of God. In other words, God is still going to come and undo what was done 
in the garden. He's going to undo the original sin, that the Messiah, the seed of the woman, is still going to come and hasn't come yet. It wasn't in Noah, which they thought maybe now Noah will be the one who will reverse the curse. It wasn't in Noah. It wasn't in Abraham, but one of Abraham's seeds. He's still going to come, and he's going to restore God's people back to a right relationship with God. Um, and and I want to bring up some What's that, David? I can just add one thing quick. Uh, I think it's cool, too, to see. You mentioned it's not. it wasn't the Babylonian kingdom. It wasn't the Persian kingdom that would last forever. It also wasn't the Jewish kingdom. Um, and that's something that I don't think the Jews understood. They kind of associated God's kingdom with, you know, the kingdom of David, the house of David, because it was promised to David. Uh, but it obviously just didn't, it didn't end up look like, looking like what they thought it was going to. And I think it's so cool to see that, Darius recognizes a kingdom of God and how it's it, he God was still ruling that kingdom even though the Jewish kingdom didn't exist at that point it was it was gone they were exiled and they returned but you know it wasn't that kingdom that Darius saw as being the kingdom of God and you know Jesus then taught about the kingdom of God and, and kind of turned we've talked about how that's all upside down but i just think that's cool that the kingdom of god transcends any you know people group or geopolitical region and that's evident if you read between the lines of of this kind of revelation here in, in daniel <clears throat> and as we mentioned this is the time of the exiles here the pre-exile pre-exile period the exile post-exile period it's a time of many stories it's a time of exile. It's also a time of the prophets. And so you have the pre-exile prophets and you have the, the prophets during exile and then the post-exile prophets. And, and they all talk about the same theme. So to, so to read these books and miss the theme of the Messiah is to miss one of the main themes that's going to be throughout the entire set of books. So when we think about the Messiah and you, you think about uh, even the famous musical pieces that have been written, like Handel's Messiah, you have to go back to Isaiah. You have to go back to these prophets who spoke of the Messiah that was yet to come to establish this kingdom. Uh, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to, uh, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn. Well, that was not spoken about this Babylonian exile per se. Um, matter of fact, it's after, I believe it's after Isaiah prophesied this, that the, that the exiles took place. So you have this, uh, you have these words of comfort that are going to be needed uh, during the exile, but he's speaking about a Messiah who would come and lead God's people out of captivity. And he rescues and saves his people. And that's how Darius put it. This is the living God who rescues and saves his people. And he saved Daniel from the lion. Which, by the way, we talked about the Messiah and conquering and everything. If you want to have some fun, look at how the lion is portrayed as sin crouching and as sin that devours. And how... Daniel was unharmed by sin and how the caves are considered the grave and how the Messiah is unharmed by the grave and by sin and conquers both of them. Anyway, separate topic. Let me go back to Isaiah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's really cool. All the parallel imagery there. Um, so, so the Messiah would come and lead God's people out of captivity, rescue and save his people. We forward to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke. 
chapter 4, verses 16 um, through 21. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus came to release the captive. It's not physically but spiritually. He came to free us from the bondage that we have been in to sin and to death. He was innocent, accused falsely, convicted, sentenced to death, sealed in a tomb, but unharmed by death and by sin and by the grave. He conquered all of that so that he could be the firstborn of those resurrected from the dead and so that we could then also be resurrected to new life through him. Daniel escaped death, Jesus conquered death, and now all those that fear God, so using the words of of Darius, let everyone fear and tremble, those that fear God will be freed from bondage of sin and pulled up from the pit of death to newness of life. There's so many beautiful parallels in this story of Daniel to the Messiah and to the work that he did and and does for us um, that it's just, it's, you can't miss it once you start to see it. And then you just want to go back and read it over again and go, oh, did you see this? Well, this is talking about this. And I want to encourage you to do that. Go back through Daniel, the first six chapters. And this time when you read through it, read through it through the lens of the Messiah and ask yourself, what does this tell us about Jesus? What is this telling us? And how, how does this hyperlink to maybe what Jesus was talking about as well? Um, it, it's, about, it's about what God is doing more so than what Daniel did. And though the lesson is there about us living in a way that other people see our lives or being brave like Daniel was, um, and though we do see the, the rescuing of God uh, saving Daniel from the lion's den, this is really about that big picture we've been talking about from the beginning. This is about God's mission of rescuing mankind. And it's about, it's pointing to what he's ultimately going to be doing through the Messiah. Um, So it's a beautiful picture, but the main story is not a moral story for you and me, as much as that's a a great thing for us to grab a hold of. The main story is about the awesome power of God over sin, over injustice, over death, uh, and how he can can raise us to new life through Jesus Christ. Um, So that's, I guess, a summary of, of... what I got from Dan, you have anything you want to add to that, David? I kind of like took all the, all the closing remarks. I'm sorry, man. I just totally like stormed that whole thing. Amen. Preach. (laughs) No, I think that's uh, I think that's a good, uh, good way to wrap it up. So why don't you uh, close us in prayer then? And, uh, and then we'll take any questions that people have. All right. Sounds good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your word and to be able to study and learn from it uh, continually. 
Thank you for the example that we have of Daniel and his life and how he served you faithfully and with courage uh, and with humility. I pray that we can learn from that um, and be also good examples um, of what it means to follow you and that we would be lights um, in the midst of darkness and that we would point people to you um, just as he did in, in his day. Uh, and I thank you so much that you know, we can we can look at that story and and see how it points to to you um, and to the sacrifice um, of your own life that you lay down for us so that we can be free from sin, from bondage, uh, and have a hope of an everlasting life with you and in your presence. I pray, Lord, that we would, in the coming weeks, soon be able to um, meet together again in person, uh, and that in the meantime, you would keep everybody safe and health, safe and healthy, and connected um, in in whatever ways we can. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.